Hello and welcome to Planet Money. I'm Robert Smith. I'm Zoe Chase. Today on the show, secrets, dirty things, shady behavior. And things that go bang. Now, how can we do all of this in just one story? Well, we can. So we have three stories for you today. A patented Planet Money 3-in-1, where we play some stories for you that aired on the radio but are new to the show here. We're going to hear from Ireland, New Zealand, New Jersey, in a show that we are calling Lawyers, Guns, and Money. First up, the lawyers. It's no secret that some Americans hide money offshore to avoid paying U.S. taxes. In fact, on Planet Money, we've shown you how easy it is to set up an offshore company. But because the accounts are overseas, it's hard to know who these people are or just how much they're hiding. We do have some idea, though. Over the past decade, about 39,000 people have disclosed offshore money that they haven't been paying taxes on. They've come forward through a voluntary disclosure program set up by the IRS. The deal? Come clean, and we will go easy on you. Our own David Kestenbaum has this story about who these people are and what it is like to come clean. The names of those 39,000 people are not published anywhere, and people who have hidden money aren't exactly eager to be interviewed. I was able to find someone who they talked to, though. Before people go to the IRS, they usually call a lawyer— And sometimes that lawyer is Charles Falk. First thing they say is, are you so-and-so? And And I say, yes. And then invariably it always is, and is it safe to talk on the phone? And uh, I always say to them, yeah. Falk has had over 200 clients who've come forward with offshore money. Sometimes they're business owners who've earned money abroad and stashed it in Switzerland or on some island. Maybe the account is owned by a trust they secretly control. Sometimes they're hiding money from a spouse. I asked if any of them would talk to me. I don't think so. (laughs) When these people call Falk, they're often worried about getting in trouble. A lot of times we'll have – the conversation will go like this. Well, listen, uh, uh, they can take all the money. They can take all the money. I just don't want to go to jail. I don't want to go to jail. I'll give them all the money. Okay. And then once you assure them that they're not going to go to jail if they come forward, then the next thing they say is, well, how much of it can I keep? So that is one category of people who have money offshore and have come forward. But there is another category. Marvin Van Horn found out about this second group when he was on vacation. He was in the car with his wife, listening, as it turns out, to public radio. The story was about offshore tax cheats. And his first thought was, yeah, IRS, go get them. And his second thought was, "Uh uh-oh, because they lived in New Zealand. I remember turning to my wife and said, are they talking about us? It was kind of like, oh, she says, no, no, no. They're talking about all those rich people that are, you know, hiding money overseas and stuff. We're not doing that. And I said, no, but we live offshore, so to speak. I think that might involve us. It did involve them. They had a checking account at a local bank in New Zealand and retirement savings. They were supposed to be reporting that they had these things and paying taxes on any earnings from that money. Van Horn says he wasn't intentionally hiding anything. He decided to go through the voluntary disclosure program. A woman from the IRS called him up to talk through everything, said he would have to pay back taxes for six years, which he said seemed fair. That was about $20,000. But then there was the penalty, which can be huge in offshore cases. The way the IRS calculates the penalty has nothing to do with the amount of taxes owed. It's calculated as a percentage of everything you have overseas that you hadn't disclosed. And for Van Horn, the penalty came to $172,000. And, you know, I about fell on the floor. I says, you're, what? That would have gutted our savings. You know, our 
retirement savings. Van Horn appealed, wrote letters, and after what he says was a very stressful 851 days, he counted, he got the penalty reduced from 172000 to 20000 The IRS declined an interview request for this story, but Charles Falk and other attorneys who have handled offshore voluntary disclosure cases say there's a spectrum. There are people who went to great lengths to hide money, and there are people who didn't know they were hiding money from the IRS, and then there are a lot of people in between. One other thing about those 39,000 people who have come forward so far, they are probably a drop in the bucket. Estimates are that something like 5 to 7 million U.S. citizens live abroad. The number of taxpayers who are declaring offshore accounts as required by law, it is a tiny fraction of that, fewer than 1 million. Next up, guns. I was recently in Alaska, and I went to the grocery store to look at their gun section, because indeed in Alaska, at Fred Meyer, you can buy groceries and guns in the same place. And the thing that amazed me was they had all these signs up that said, oh, we've run out of this kind of gun, we've run out of this kind of ammo, our shipments come in on Tuesdays and Thursdays at this time, and you could picture people lining up in order to get weapons and ammo. There's a big ammo shortage right now, and the reason is exactly what you would expect. Democratic president, shooting, tragedies, and gun owners are afraid it'll be harder to get guns and ammo in this country. And ammo factories, they say, we're producing all we can, and we don't want to build whole new factories just because a news event has freaked everyone out. So Marianne McCune went out to New Jersey to see what gun shop owners are doing about it. A classic economics textbook would tell you this shouldn't happen. Uh, I've been looking for 380 ammo, and it's very hard to get. So how long have you been looking? Oh, about six months. Really? Yes. Bill Flaherty and gun owners across the country say it's also hard to find ammo for some rifles for the popular 9mm. Even 22 rounds, the small ones, have been hard to come by. Clarity is here buying what he can from the owner of a bustling gun shop in southern New Jersey. I'm Bob Viden, Bob's Little Sports Shop. <laughs> in back, there's a pistol range. Bob Viden has had this operation for almost 50 years, and he's doing more volume than ever. Old customers are stocking up. New customers are pouring in. They're afraid of their government. They think Washington is going to take away their rights. They want to be protected in case something happens. They can't get it in the future. And some ammo dealers, they are doing what the invisible hand of the market would direct them to. Demand is high, supply isn't keeping up, so raise the price. Like some places, especially online, they're charging twice as much. Customer Michael Deary says Bob's little sports shop could charge more, too. Would you be bad or would you be willing to pay a little bit more? I would pay a little bit more. Like how much more? I'd probably pay twice as much what it's worth. So we're in a store where they can't keep enough product on the shelves. We've got customers saying they'll pay twice the price for the product. And still, the owner says, no thanks. Bob, Mikey says that he would pay probably twice as much for the ammo that he wants to buy. What do you say to that? We don't want to do that. We want to keep customers coming back because we want to be fair. Apparently, so do some of the best-known ammo sources across the country. At the sporting goods store Cabela's and at Walmart, shelves are empty, but prices are fairly consistent. During my conversations at Bob's Little Sports Shop, the word fair came up about two dozen times. And that word is key here. 
traditional economic theory doesn't really have room for fairness perceptions. Margaret Campbell is a professor of marketing at University of Colorado's Business School. And she says about 30 years ago. People started noticing that there were these uh, kind of quirks, according to traditional economic theory. For example, the reason behind a price increase matters to people. If a consumer sees a price go up in an unexpected fashion, then they want to know why. Why has that gone up? Campbell says there are a lot of reasons consumers approve of, but an increase in demand? That is not one of them. Raising your prices just because all of a sudden more people want your stuff? Customers don't like it, and a lot of retailers try to avoid it, even if it means inconveniencing their customers in other ways. I'll take a box of that. Back at Bob's Little Sports Shop and a lot of other places, they are rationing. And customer Michael Deary says that is fair. Let everybody get a little bit instead of somebody getting all of it. Of course, the invisible hand always finds some way. Some people have been buying ammo at low cost and selling it at a higher price online essentially scalping bullets. Scalpers don't care about return customers, and their customers don't expect them to be fair. Money. Okay, $30 billion. That is the amount of money earned over the last couple of years by Apple. Operations International. I know what you're thinking. That's the company that makes the iPhones. But no, no, that is Apple. Apple Operations International is the creepy shell company that Apple uses to hide its iPhone profits overseas from the U.S. government. You may have seen last week congressional hearings. Tim Cook, Apple's CEO, went to Congress to answer why Apple is storing so much money overseas, specifically in a tiny pastoral country across the Atlantic, Ireland. Apple's three primary Irish entities hold 60% of the company's profits, but claim to be tax residents nowhere in the world. When McCain says nowhere in the world, he is not exaggerating. This is not hyperbole. This is Apple's tax strategy. Apple can make money disappear from the earth. We will show you how they do it. Take the shell company we were talking about, Apple Operations International. What does it do exactly? It's a holding company, a company of companies. It has an address in Ireland, but there's nobody there. The company has no employees, presumably little overhead, but it does have money. European iPhone money. If you buy an iPhone in Brussels, that money gets transferred to a company, which transfers it to another company, then another company, which transfers it to Apple Operations International. And there it sits. This company pays no taxes to Ireland because of this quirk in the Irish tax code. If the company's managed somewhere else, it pays no Irish taxes. Apple Operations International, for example, it's managed out of Cupertino, California. So Irish company managed in California. But the United States has a law that is the opposite. The United States doesn't care where it's managed. It cares where it's incorporated. And maybe you're now seeing the simple brilliance of what Apple has done. Apple Operations International pays no taxes to Ireland because of their laws, no taxes to the United States because of our laws, and some of that money gets lost over the Atlantic. And this has been going on, this beautiful little arbitrage, for more than 30 years. Tim Cook, when he went to Congress, he basically told them, where have you guys been? We have this sweet deal going, and it is not a secret. We went to Ireland in 1980, 
And uh, they were very much recruiting, I believe, technology companies at that time. And as a part of recruiting us, the Irish government did give us a tax incentive agreement. It's been a fundamental part of Ireland's economic strategy to get foreign companies to set up operations in Ireland. They offer these really low corporate tax rates. In Apple's case, not all their subsidiaries in Ireland pay zero taxes. But the taxes they do pay are much, much lower than what they'd pay in the U.S., on the order of 30 percentage points lower. Now, before Congress goes off on some anti-Ireland crusade, going down to the cafeteria changing the name of Irish stew to freedom stew. The congressman may want to know a little secret. The people who came up with this idea that Ireland was going to steal company profits from the United States, the villain of this piece is, in fact, the U.S. government itself. It dates back to rebuilding money that Ireland got from the United States right after the war. We talked to Frank Barry, an Irish economist who'd studied Irish tax history, and he says the first thing Ireland did when it got the U.S. money was to ask for advice on how to spend it. Amongst the things we did was we hired a group of U.S. consultants. They issued a 100-page report to the Irish government. And tucked into this 100-page report, on a single page, the consultants... Drew Ireland's attention to the case of Puerto Rico. Puerto Rico, the consultants noted had done very well in the post-war period by lowering its corporate tax rate. To lure U.S. multinational corporations to set up production in Puerto Rico and export back to the U.S. Oh, that single page in the 100-page report turned out to be the very best part, even though... The U.S. consultants downplayed it. They said this is probably not relevant to the Irish situation. But we, our bureaucrats here spotted it and said... This has the makings of a very good idea. Ireland, the tax shelter of sorts, was born in the style of Puerto Rico with State Department funds. This, of course, was not the Americans' intention. In fact, the report started out with a very different suggestion. The single opening line says, in the Irish economy, cattle is king. I took a little risk. As always, we like to hear what you think of the program. You should email us, planetmoney at npr.org. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. I'm Zoe Chase. And I'm Robert Smith. Thanks for listening. I'm the innocent bystander. Somehow I got stuck. Rock in a hard place And I'm down on my luck Yes, I'm down